0: Welcome to Coach House Talks. Good morning. Hope everybody can hear me clearly. Yes, there we are. So yeah, it's a a very, very long passage, so bear with me. Um, The sermon doesn't end when I say, uh, until I say amen, so... (laughs) Yes. So today we'll be talking about three books of the Bible, the last three books of the law, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, specifically on the law of offerings. I'll just start off with a story. Um, When I was a child, one of my religious study teachers told me that there were ceremonial, civil, and moral laws of the Old Testament, and that modern day Christians only had to care about the moral laws. I had no clue what he was talking about, and he did not bother clarifying afterwards. Um, So I later thought to myself when I was 12 or something uh, that he probably had no clue what he was talking about. (laughs) Um, So to keep it simple, for the younger years of my life, I just followed whatever my pastor said. Um, we had to do, because everything else pointed to the idea that the Old Testament books of the law were just outdated fuddy-duddy legalist nonsense. And I think a lot of us uh, pick up that view quite a lot too. So, um, a slightly different story now. My grandfather, I want to talk about my grandfather a bit, on my mother's side of the family, um, died before my parents got married. Uh, So, I've always heard stories about him. He was the 11th child of a rich man in Macau. But due to inheritance issues, as you're prone to get when you're very rich, uh, he grew up poor. He had to make a living for himself in construction, building houses, and lugging bricks. For many years, he slowly saved up money uh, to bring his family over to Hong Kong, which is uh, a sea away in, in in Macau, one by one. My mother had to live separately from her brothers for a good portion of her childhood in different cities because not everyone in the family could be registered to live in Hong Kong all at once. We didn't have the money. Because of this, when I was younger, I always imagined my grandfather to be a rough and tough, uh, ragged sort of individual. I was around 20 years old when I finally realized that there was a huge black-and-white family portrait photo framed above my grandmother's dining table. Um, It had been there since I was born. Uh, But it took me 20 years to realize that it was my mother's family portrait photo. And there was a very well-dressed, clean-shaven man sitting in the middle of the photo. Uh, My grandfather was actually quite thin and educated. I use this example because we often think of a very particular type of God in our heads. Um, This picture in our heads may often not match up to what the books of the law describe the character of God to be. We like to think of the New Testament Jesus full of love for mankind, um, but we often have trouble understanding the God in the laws that were written in the Old Testament. What we need to know is that Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection only works because of the foundation that was written and highlighted in the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Today, we're going to talk about the character of God as established in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and I'm going to focus on a very small section of laws in Leviticus before linking them with particular examples in Numbers and Deuteronomy. This section is centered around the law of sacrificial offerings and why they matter to us even today. The book of Leviticus starts off and ends uh, with the Israelites camping at the foot of Mount Sinai uh, where Exodus left off. The tabernacle, um, it's big tent, the tent where God stayed Um, and with the Israelites was built. And in the first seven chapters, we are introduced to the law of sacrificial offerings. Sacrifices are not a new idea. Uh, We see sacrifices mentioned in the time of Cain and Abel, a very, very, very long time ago. It is not until Leviticus, however, uh, where we see sacrifices so extensively detailed by God. As Christians, we do not believe Moses filled Leviticus with his own ideas on how sacrifices to God should go. Um, As Christians, we believe that God himself handed down all these instructions and laws on how sacrificial offerings to himself should operate Um, in the sense of what specifically is required, when these sacrifices needed to happen and what these sacrifices mean Leviticus is the book where God shows in the most clear-cut manner what he wants as a designer of rituals and ceremonies. While we have Jesus' sacrifice as modern-day Christians, the original mosaic law of sacrificial offerings designed by God is not meaningless, even to the present day. As Christians, we believe that God does not take up meaningful, meaningless action. Um, Everything is supposed to be meaningful. Um, It cannot be that he was bored and decided to come up with a whole long list of do's and do nots um, around sacrificing lesser animals for Israelites at Mount Sinai. That would mean that the thousand and a half years leading up to Jesus' birth from the time of Moses would have been just a waiting game to God. And we know that is not true. No, we believe that God designed the law of sacrifices for specific reasons, all of which are meaningful. The system of sacrifices served not just as the central foundation of why Jesus dying at all actually works, like why, why would killing someone work, um, as a method of salvation, but also that this particular system was created to show humanity that God cares about Um, who he cares about, and who he is. While we do not have time to detail the offerings in particular, we can look at what makes each offering unique. There are five major sacrificial offerings mentioned in Leviticus. Three are voluntary and two are mandatory. The three voluntary offerings are... To begin with, the grain offering, the peace offering, and the burnt offering. We know that grain is a symbol of something necessary to man, to be offered without honey or yeast, to be burned in part on the altar before God as an offering of thanksgiving and recognition of God's provision in our lives. Similar to the grain offering, the peace offering was something given to recognize God's generosity and in other times, it's given as an expression to fulfill a vow. Then we have the famous burnt offering. And it is not the sin offering. Um, we get that often confused. The burnt offering means to set things right with God, symbolizing atonement or total surrender to God. The grain offering, peace offering, and burnt offerings have nothing to do with a need to appease God's anger. To summarize, God designed these free offerings as pure free will offerings. These only happen when someone wants to take the time to express that they have recognized God's grace. Now we go to the two mandatory offerings, which are the sin offering and the guilt offering. The sin offering is to atone and be purified. The guilt offering will be made when someone had desecrated something holy or deprived someone of their rights. There are a lot of details we can pick out in the laws surrounding the five types of offerings in Leviticus. But just to highlight, in the five offerings, only the grain offering did not require the life of an animal to be used as a sacrifice. Also, for each animal sacrifice, it had to be without defect and healthy. It had to be taken from the sacrificer's domesticated flock or herd, which means each animal offered had to be taken as part of the Israelites' personal inventory. It could not be some random animal found elsewhere. To God, A sacrificial offering meant that there was a personal cost to yourself, even if it means hurting your wallet. Even in modern times, Christians need to be aware of why the guilt and sin offerings were mandatory and absolutely relevant to the foundation of our faith, even today. We could have talked about the differences between ceremonial, civil, and moral laws, but the simple summary is that the laws dealing with sin and guilt are eternally relevant, from the past to today and in the future. While we do not go before the tabernacle or the temple as the Israelites did, the foundation of our faith is built on these principles. Leviticus chapter five, verses 17 says, if anyone sins, and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even if they do not know it, they are guilty and will be held responsible. For Christians, it is not up to us to decide if sin exists or if sin that was committed is important. Sin has always been a huge problem. Sin is still very much an issue in our lives today. Back in Leviticus, God has made it very clear that while Thanksgiving ceremonies are voluntary to him, sin offerings and guilt offerings were not up for discussion. God highlights these matters as priority number one. As Christians, We believe in the true supremacy of God and the existence of sin as a disaster that continues to decay this world. I once wrote in a piece of writing that sin is a challenge to the sovereignty of God. It's very easy to say, oh, sin are just all bad things, but in reality, sin is a state without holiness. It's incompatibility with the divine order Sin leads to death as simple cause and effect. Human lives were designed to be holy. Sin does not reduce the quality of a holy life, for a less holy life is simply no longer holy. Sin simply reduces life, and as a fundamental law of the world, that is why we die. We physically die because of sin. To be clear, a death is ultimately required when there is sin. By nature, we should die when we sin, not because of human condemnation in the modern world or common bigotry from the Christians, but because of a fundamental law since creation. All sins are accountable. However, God permits substitution and sacrifice It is through Old Testament law that sin may be covered by sacrifice. God's grace is in Levitical law. By permitting a sin offering, the death of a clean animal took the place for sins committed by an Israelite. Now we, we, escaped the requirement of endless sin offerings because of a final sacrifice in Jesus Christ that has been offered to God. This sacrifice is the death of a God in the form of Jesus, valuable enough to fulfill this fundamental law for those who believe. However, while Jesus has been offered for all time as one sacrifice, it is still required in this day and age to confess our wrongdoings before God and repent of our sinful habits. Jesus resolves the problem of the sacrificial offering for all those who believe, but the responsibility of confession and repentance is ours in both Old and New Testament eras. First John, chapter one, verses seven to nine states, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Making things right with God and being purified by him whenever we sin is still something we still need to go through. Leviticus requires the sacrificer to come before a priest in the tabernacle, confess their sins, and watch their substitute die in their place. Today, we have no physical tabernacle or temple to go to, but we still have the personal responsibility of going before God Acknowledging the final sacrificial substitute in Jesus and confessing our sins. In all five sacrificial offerings described in Leviticus, heartfelt communication with God is a key point. Now, aside from general thanksgiving, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 summarizes, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The first part of Leviticus, the sacrificial system, highlights the disastrous reality of sin and God's meticulous grace for humanity. While God has no obligation to make things easier for us, he details, like a concerned father, writing a letter to his children, an extensive system of sacrifice in the beginning of Leviticus. And quite often I find it very long and detailed and boring, but the reality is it is very important. Towards the end of Leviticus, we have an incident. In chapter eight, we see Moses having finished receiving the initial set of laws around sacrificial offerings and he prepares Aaron's family for priesthood duties in front of the Israelite assembly This is what we call the ordination of Aaron and his sons. Moses anoints Aaron with oil and clothes Aaron's sons. Then he goes through the first public sin offerings and burnt offerings with the priests. Towards the end of the priest's ordination ceremony, fire from the Lord comes out and consumes the offerings in front of the people. The ceremony goes well for the most part up until chapter 9. According to the detailed procedures, God has told Moses in the past eight chapters. Then in the beginning of Leviticus chapter 10, it suddenly reads, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. That was the end of the first public run of the Israelites' offering ceremonies. Two of Aaron's sons were killed. To make it absolutely clear, there was nothing wrong with the censers, which were containers containing the special incense these ceremonies there was also nothing wrong with the incense it was the right kind of incense to be used before god the unauthorized or strange fire the passage talks about is not some kind of mystical evil fire for pagans but simple man-made fire of their own making the tools that were being used were holy for the most part there were two issues we can say for certain that had gone wrong. The first is that fire was unauthorized as they really should have been using the holy fire from the altar to put into the censers. The second is the action of offering the incense before God at that time of their ordination that was against his command. And this might, and probably will, rub innovative worship trendsetters the wrong way, but the simple answer is that God cares about how we worship, and Aaron's sons crossed that line. God gave them a detailed ordination ceremony, and Aaron's sons did not follow through that agenda. Maybe they were being too passionate about worshiping God or maybe they wanted to show off, Um, we don't know. But the intentions did not matter in this case. They were supposed to respect and follow a specific set of actions and it could have ended there in a peaceful manner if they've not decided to add their own ceremonial flare towards the end. We are not here right now to judge worship styles today. The situation with Aaron's sons can have many interpretations. However, this event in Leviticus shows that God values order and appropriate respect for his ways. Strikingly, we see an example in the New Testament in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul addresses a moment in time where the churches were dishonoring communion, the Lord's Supper. Some believers took communion to be a time to eat supper or be drunk because there was wine and food. They were being very casual and completely ignoring the point of communion. Chapter 11, verses 27 to 31 says, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Now just to make it clear in modern day terms, Paul is saying that many of the Corinthian believers became ill and died because they were messing around with communion. Regardless of what our feelings are on these examples, God cannot be dishonored. I do not usually quote commentaries, but one valuable message I've read in the Enduring Word Commentary says, make no mistake, we can come to God just as we are, but we may not come to him any way we please. We must come the way he has provided, the way made by Jesus Christ. At the heart of the law, God desires obedience to his ways. The greatest commandment is not to love your neighbor as yourself, contrary to popular media, but to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind, as written in Deuteronomy chapter six and affirmed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. The law tells us that above you or me, above the poor friend or ill neighbor, God should be the one you walk with. In the book of Numbers, we see the journey of the Israelites after they set out from Mount Sinai, full of dissatisfaction towards God and indulgence in their own wisdom. Numbers chapter 14, As Israelites, having heard a report about how fearsome their enemies were um, in the promised land, um, they began shrinking back in fear. Despite God's promises, they no longer wanted to enter the promised land. Instead, they banded together to talk about murdering Moses and going back to Egypt. God responds, promising them that the current generation of Israelites no longer need to enter the land. It's good. They were free to wander in the desert for 40 years. Chapter 14, verses 39 to 40 says, When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they set out from the highest point in the hill country, saying, Now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. To summarize the ending, the Israelites rush up, to fight their enemies, full of confidence and they were beaten back, nonetheless. The key point here is that even though there was a confession and admission of their sin, uh, which leads to the confession of sins, that does not mean that we do not face the consequences of our sins. In Christ, while we are no longer condemned for our sin, there is correction and discipline. And to put it frankly, If God said in his word that he will not be supporting you on certain actions and that you would suffer the consequences if you continue, then you really have yourself to blame when things go badly. No amount of weeping or crying will make God compromise on sinful endeavors. It's not up to us. Many of us like to sing the the words of, if God is for us, who can be against us? I I love that song myself. Um, This is a snippet that originally comes from Romans chapter eight, where Paul was finished detailing several sections about um, living according to the spirit of God and no longer being bound by sin in the flesh. Now we can feel free to sing those words, but let us also be reminded that the most important thing is to be on the same page as God first. The word Deuteronomy means second law, the second giving or recounting of all that went um, on in Exodus and Leviticus by Moses. There's only two points I need to say in the context of what we already covered. The first is that we are expected to commit to walking in obedience to God. Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you may have to ask who will ascend into the heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. Moses believes that this request is reasonable. To choose to walk in obedience to God is not an impossible task set aside only for sinless beings. We may stumble along our path, but the choice to do things God's way rather than rely on our own wisdom is is our choice. Moses continues in verses 15 to 18. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you may live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down, to other gods and worship them. I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. In this day and age, we can argue that we don't need an imaginary God, um, and imaginary gods no longer have to be carved into existence. Whatever the case, Moses gives it very simply to the Israelites that their success of being able to establish themselves in the promised land will depend on whether or not they commit to being obedient to God. For Christians, we can see parallels to Romans chapter six in the New Testament where Paul writes that we are now dead to sin but alive in Christ. While we are not sinless and will continue to experience sinful habits and temptations throughout our time on this earth, we have a daily choice to be either obedient to God or do things our way. The advantage of the Holy Spirit living within us is that while we have not fully lost our desire to sin, it is possible to break free from sinful habits that should not reign over us. By grace and fulfillment of the law and freedom of the penalty of sin, we do have the option to choose to be obedient to God and to disregard our own self-serving interests. The books of the law are full of descriptions and details that showed the character and heart of God. The books may be looked down upon in this day and age because many think that the laws have no purpose anymore. But we cannot forget the moral laws, the required attitudes and the depictions of God, especially the fundamental spiritual laws of the world behind the law of Moses. This is even if the final sacrificial offering has been satisfied by way of Jesus Christ. So let us not be smug about the fact that we can eat shellfish or wear mixed fabrics today, as these are minor civil and ceremonial permissions. Instead, let us reflect on the fact that the laws based on God's character show the heart of God, and that God continues to have certain expectations of his believers even today. We need to recognize the sins described by God, accept his ways over our own, show true devotion before him in worship, and respect God for who he is Rather than who we imagine him to be. Amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.